Spoiler alert. We preface this podcast with a spoiler alert, as this novel is different from the more formal economics works we usually discuss on this podcast, and we wish to give the listener the chance to opt out and read the book first if they wish. We greatly enjoyed the read, and even if we don't see eye to eye on much of the economics in this novel, we found the indulgence of literature a valuable endeavor to make more tangible some of the human aspects of economics, including the fear of collapse. Hello, my name is Philip Carlson. I'm chief economist of Boston Consulting Group, and you're listening to the BCG Henderson Institute's podcast series. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Lionel Shriver to talk about her novel, The Mandibles, A Family. Lionel is the noted author of several prize-winning novels, including the 2003 bestseller, We Need to Talk About Kevin, and her books typically tackle difficult societal problems. This is also the case in The Mandibles, where she provides a riveting and dystopian take on the destructive potential of national debt, currency crises, and inflation which is why we've invited her to speak with us today. I believe you're the first novelist on the series. Thank you so much, Lionel, for joining me today. Thank you, and I'm honored. I'm mindful of the fact that not all listeners will have read your novel, so allow me to, to give a quick reader's summary. The Mandibles is a dystopian vision of a wholesale economic and societal collapse in the United States driven by a debt and currency crisis in the 2030s and resulting in, in runaway inflation. Fortunes are lost, societal order breaks down, but the novel, the way I read it, is not predominantly about the very wealthy. You tell the collapse through the perspectives of four generations of the Mandibles family, and while there is great wealth at the top with the patriarch Douglas, he's reluctant to pass it down the generations and so we get a chance to see the collapse through the eyes of various socioeconomic perspectives. While it's very dark, it is also a page turner and very vividly spells out the impact of economic calamity on people's lives. I hope I didn't mangle that summary. Is that a fair take? Yes, I'm glad that you noticed that I tried to spread my characters across the economic spectrum. It was very important to have someone in the mix who had a lot of money because that's where the drama is. If you start out with no money and then you have no money, then nothing has happened, and that's not good for fiction. So, yes, this is about a family that there is a sizable fortune uh, stuck at the top with a, a patriarch who's 98 years old and refuses to die, much to, to the despair of his heirs. And um, then the, uh, the president renounces the national debt. And that has a that results in a series of calamities, one of which is runaway inflation, because being a bad debtor, then the U.S. can't borrow and therefore prints its way, well, fails to print its way out of a crisis. That's generally the way it works. So, you know, this was another example of many now in my career of my budding into a field that isn't mine and doesn't belong to me. You may find it a little presumptuous, but for me it was exciting because I had always dismissed economics as tedious and boring. But I discovered that once I started reading post-2008 literature in particular, hmm. that uh, economics 
has itself become an apocalyptic field and is anything but dull. Let's start with the relevance of the book to the present day. So somewhere in the book, one of the characters, Lowell, I think he says to his daughter, science fiction isn't about the future, it's about the fears of the present, paraphrasing roughly. Now, you published this book in 2016 when public debt in the United States stood at roughly 20 trillion. Since then, we had the Trump tax cuts. They were expensive. We had the COVID response, and we're going to get more COVID stimulus, all of which is expensive. And now we're only eight years out from the start of the plot in your novel. So I guess if anxiety about the sustainability of debt drove you to write this, are you more anxious today still? Or do you take solace in the fact that debt markets are quiet, remarkably sanguine about the accumulation of debt and interest rates are at, at record lows? I'm hysterical. Yeah, my anxiety has ramped up multiple times. And my biggest worry now is not just that the plot of the book will come to pass, but that the main thing that I may have got wrong was the date. Starting the collapse in 2029 was too late. I'm also alarmed by the uh, growing popularity of modern monetary theory, which um, doesn't make any sense to me. Let me ask you about the darkness of the book. It's very suspenseful. It's funny, has a particularly sardonic brand of humor, but it is also extremely dark in terms of painting that vision. It seems like you make choices to paint it particularly dark. What I'm referring to, I think, is you're coupling or binding together the economic collapse with the societal collapse. They seem to be two sides of the same coin in the plot. I guess the question is, why did you make that choice? If we look at history and you know the instances of currency and debt collapse, it's not always a foregone conclusion that you go from economic collapse all the way to societal anarchy. It does happen. I'm thinking Russian Revolution, China after the Second World War. There are also many examples where that doesn't happen. I guess, are there other elements of pessimism that play into it? Or would you fault economics entirely for such a scenario? Well, naturally, as a fiction writer, I'm going to be drawn to the most eventful scenario. So when I look at fiscal collapse, then I'm going to look at other kinds of collapse and throw them all into the same basket. And I grant you that societal collapse is not inevitable, but it certainly becomes more likely. I mean, simply being able to survive, especially in an urban environment without a functional currency is very difficult. Why should you give me an apple if I give you a dollar and the dollar isn't worth anything? You keep your apple. It means the trade that we depend on even for our physical survival, breaks down. It seems to me that in that kind of circumstance, crime is almost inevitably going to rise, as it does in my novel. And that doesn't mean that there are rampaging gangs all over the place murdering everyone. In fact, I think I should be admired for my restraint <laughs> of, in terms of how much I had go wrong. And in fact, a lot of the challenge of writing the novel and plotting it was to make sure that life decayed gradually at first and in very small ways. So I had to keep the brakes on and only toward 
the end of the first major section of the novel do things start accelerating. And that's just not necessarily about reality as, as the demands of fiction. Let me uh, elaborate on my question, though. I think when you look at the field of dystopian novels, the economics angle is quite rare. It's a thin genre in the economic dystopian novel, but there are many political dystopian novels. And I, I wonder, is it, is it just because nobody else has ventured there before you? Or is it because ultimately the big meltdown is always a political story more than an economic story? So the Russian Revolution does see a currency crisis, but few would tell the story of the Russian Revolution through the economics lens. Same about China after the Second World War. And so I guess the bigger point is, if the polity of a nation is sound, why can it not go through a orderly bankruptcy and start with a clean slate? There is no inevitability unless the institutional basis is already rotten. There is no inevitability, I would have thought, that, that you go into the political collapse. And so I wonder, do you maybe, did you consider that dimension or do you maybe even think that the United States suffers also in addition to a debt addiction? Does it also suffer from an institutional decay that, that could justify a very big break? Oh, I think there's no question post-Trump that we are suffering from institutional decay, though that institutional decay predated Trump. Um, Congress has been dysfunctional for years now, and that's not the Donald's fault. As for my choice to write an economic dystopia, part of that was knowing how much competition I had in the whole dystopia field. There are huge numbers of books that take on very dark views of the future and various versions of collapse. And I hadn't encountered any book that had focused exclusively on economic collapse. So that was a kind of niche opportunity for me. But it also coincided with what was consuming me as a topic, you know, what I was reading about in the newspaper post-2008. I went through the experience of buying a house in the UK at the same time that all this turmoil was going on in 2009. It was the worst time to do the what was for me at that time. That was the biggest financial move of my life. And trying to get money into a like five different bank accounts because you couldn't trust those accounts beyond the government guarantee. It was just ridiculous. And so Something about that experience, first of all, frightened the bejesus out of me because suddenly banks were not trustworthy vehicles for your money, but also captured my imagination. And because once the dust settled, uh, it became pretty clear that what happened in 2008 was really all about what didn't happen, right? what we came close to. And that was very disturbing to me. So I w wanted to look at what didn't happen. Let's talk about the psychology of money for a moment. Throughout the novel, we see characters' difficult relationship with wealth. Douglas, uh, the patriarch who doesn't want to part with it. His son, Carter, who feels the shame and guilt of waiting for his inheritance. Carter's daughter, Florence, who, who is stressed to build her own economic independence in the shadow of the family fortune. It, to me, it seemed like the only characters who seem to have a sound relationship to, to money and wealth were willing and potentially his stepfather Esteban. 
essentially those who are too far removed from the line of inheritance to really expect to gain anything. So is there inevitably a burden of wealth that will distort people's relationship with money? Does it pollute our lives unless it's earned? Well, I'm very uneasy with inherited wealth. In fact, I've written another book, uh, several books back, called The Perfectly Good Family, which is all about inheritance. So that's a, that's a topic that engages me. I think that my views are very pro- typically Protestant. You know, I'm big on earned income and not big on getting what amounts to a kind of family handout. It's another version of welfare. And I don't think either of those forms of welfare are very um, character building. And that naturally comes also with a lot of guilt and sensations of unworthiness, uh, if you have any consciousness, and then also an impulse to justify yourself and rationalize the receipt of that wealth. You know, I think that anybody who's ever had money realizes that it's a potentially distorting there's an aspect of it that is burdensome. If nothing else, the first thing that you feel when you have money is that you want to keep it. Perhaps the healthiest response is to spend it in a way that you feel is responsible. But I think the the initial impulse on acquiring wealth is to keep it. And one of the ugly discoveries of accumulating any assets at all for me has been how hard that is to keep value. And I think that everyone now in this no-interest environment with the runaway stock market is wondering the same thing, if you have assets. Now that's, that's an interesting observation. But let's talk about that ending. While I don't want to spoil it for listeners who haven't yet read it, the protagonist, Willing, escapes the dystopian US of A of the 2030s and 40s and escapes to a libertarian utopia, if I may say so. So um, there is more optimism at the end. Yet, what I found very interesting, what seals his optimism and his future in the end, is ultimately the gold that his aunt Nolly has taken throughout the whole plot and gives to him for a fresh start in that libertarian utopia. And so, is Willing's libertarian utopia corrupted by such fortuitous founding capital? Is it sort of inevitable that even the most individualistic person is shaped and polluted by the origins of their wealth? Is there also an inequality theme? Is there any prospects in capitalism unless there is an endowment of wealth at the start? Well, the endowment of wealth was more to do with character than ideology. Again, I don't want to give away the whole ending, but willing my initial adolescent protagonist who grows up in 2047, he would still have thrived, I think, in my libertarian utopia without his aunt's endowment. He has been resourceful throughout the book, and it is only thanks to his resourcefulness and enterprise that they have made it to Nevada. No one will be surprised that I chose Nevada as my utopia. You know, they are fleeing the tyranny of a government that lives within its means now, but as a consequence, given the demographics, taxes young people to the wall. So everyone has to have three jobs. You don't get to keep anything. Everyone is chipped, and this is not um, 
I, I noticed this is not a, unique to me, this idea of putting a chip in people the way we now already do with dogs. But in my dystopia of 2047, the chip is not just there to keep track of where you go and what you say and, and to control you politically, it's to control you economically. So that chip is where all your money goes, and the government can extract all of your earnings through the chip in the back of your neck. And it's in the back of your neck to make sure that you can't dig it out. So the libertarian society that Willing escapes to is a, is a flat tax world with minimalist provision by the state. Um, sort of the takers are left behind and the makers have a future in, in that new country. It's part of a more optimistic ending of your novel, and yet you plant much doubt in the very last sentence of the novel when you <laughs> quip that in 2064, the flat tax rises from 10% to 11%. Um, I guess you're of alluding course. to the, yeah, you're alluding to the perpetual tax and spend cycles, irrespective of societal configuration. I mean, are you saying the problem of profligacy is not solvable? Are you saying there are more desirable, less desirable versions? It's... It's a, it's, a very, it's a very good ending. I'm glad you liked it. It made me laugh. <laughs> that's, that's to me a test of a good ending. It should either make you laugh or make you cry. That is expressive of my general view that it is in the nature of government to get bigger. Look at history. Government naturally expands to eat its young. There are very few examples of governments which have successfully trimmed their sales and become much smaller than they used to be. So yeah, the very end of the novel is meant to say, yes, cynically, there is no escape. The same cycle will repeat. And you're going to have an enormous government that promises too much and probably starts deficit spending and bracking up more debt until it becomes unsustainable and everything collapses. It's a kind of Zen, circular view of the world. So even if one doesn't fully agree with the economics in your novel, I find you do a remarkable job at making the problems tangible, uh, the impact on people's lives. You're not an economist yourself. How did you go about researching and, and giving it the full richness of, of your ideas and descriptions? I just did a lot of reading. I did a lot of reading, but I didn't do too much. Uh, because I didn't want to feel overwhelmed. I read enough to sate my appetite, at least for the time being, and so that the the ideas still felt fresh. And one of the things that I wanted to be able to do was to express economic ideas in terms that the reader would understand um, and therefore get across my newly discovered enthusiasm for these ideas. And it doesn't mean that you have to share them. And I, I realize that economics is riven with division and disagreement, and there is no one truth. So, you know, but that just makes it more interesting to me. And I had different characters take different viewpoints. And I deliberately made one of my characters an economics professor at Georgetown University. And that made it possible for him to spout various views that in some cases, I wanted to destroy. <laughs> right. But I still had a sense of excitement, and I didn't allow myself to be cowed 
because there is a huge amount of material out there, and I don't have the background to take it all on. And I think that if I were to have, in a funny way, taken the project too seriously, I wouldn't have been able to do it to begin with because it required a certain amount of chutzpah uh, to venture into the these areas. And, you know, even so, my editor's first response to the initial draft was get rid of all the economics, <laughs> you know, because she just didn't have any time for it. It didn't happen to interest her, not in the slightest. So um, I trimmed it back a little. Um, that probably was in the interest of the flow of the narrative, but I sure didn't get rid of all of it because that was what distinguishes the novel. I mean, that's, I that's what makes it special. And uh, interestingly, I um, recently uh, sold this to a television producer. We'll see oh. if he can make it in time before the real collapse comes. <laughs> they better start filming soon. But he recognized right away that that's what distinguishes this novel is the economics, and that's what re needs to remain even in a television version, however cryptically, in order to distinguish this plot from everybody else's. Let me ask you one final question. If your readers are truly anxious about this topic, and you, you probably gathered I'm a little more skeptical than you are, but I recognize the, the risks and the themes. But if readers are truly anxious, um, what is the practical implication? Well, practically, the first thing you can do is go out and buy my book. So I agree. I think it's, I think it's therapeutic. I mean, I, I find that uh, – I mean, some people want to read to um, distract themselves, and, and this book is not going to do that for you. But I find that fiction is a good release valve for anxiety. It's the ultimate safe space, right? So you can explore your fears and then – close the book and pour yourself a drink. Everything's fine. You know, the world has not fallen apart. So I, I think the mandibles is a good, good resort. I mean, practically or even spiritually, you can't really protect yourself from proper disaster. And there's a relaxation in that. Right. I mean, and furthermore, it hasn't happened yet. So one of the lessons in the book, insofar as there are any, is appreciate what you've got now. I mean, I don't know about you, but I can still afford to open a bottle of red wine at night. And I can still go to the supermarket and get a chicken. And I don't actually require that much more. And I think a lot of us are satisfied with a kind of medium level, simple pleasures. And when you have that, and that level of security, you know, just enjoy it, just appreciate it. For all the political turmoil that we've gone through in the U.S., most of us are still okay. We're still okay, and the sky hasn't fallen. And people like me make our living making the sky fall in an imaginative way. I don't think you're going to get a lot of great investment advice from the Mandibles because the Mandibles went about destroying every single resort that you might think is going to save you from the apocalypse. But you can't save yourself from the apocalypse. That's why they have such a bad reputation. Thank you so much, Lionel, for joining me today. And again, I had a great time reading the book, even if I think we would probably not be 
entirely agreed on all the all the risks and the strengths of the risks, but it's a, it's a marvelous read and, and, and very well done. And thank you so much for spending time with us today. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks, Thanks. a lot.